0: to Rebecca and Holly and
1: we are the directors of a new society called Young Musicians for Social Justice. Young Musicians for Social Justice seeks to bring together and empower young musicians to recognise their potential as agents of social change and this podcast asks the question what is the role of music in bringing about social justice?
0: Over the next 10 weeks we are going to be hearing from a number of different speakers all with unique perspectives on this question.
1: We are both students at the University of Leeds. We met over coffee at Hyde Park Book Club here in Leeds, which if you're a student, you must go to. And we bonded over our mutual interests in music and social change.
0: We really hope you enjoy listening to our conversations as much as we did.
1: Right, so today uh, our guest is Kaina, Poncho and Bailey. Um, Originally from Alaska, Kaina Ponchon-Bailey is a UK-based academic and conductor committed to fostering social justice and environmental sustainability both within and through orchestral music. With a focus on artistic co-production and creative collaboration, her orchestral projects are designed to amplify voices and raise awareness around pressing social and environmental issues. Kayana's research is focused on the social, psychological and socio-political aspects of orchestral music making, from the intricacies of co-performer communication in modern and historically informed contexts, to, politi- to the politics of participation and orchestra's geopolitical significance. Kiana is Associate Conductor of the Orchestra of St. John's, Director of Performance at St. Catherine's College, University of Oxford, Director of Research for the Oxford Conducting Institute and a postdoctoral researcher at the AHRC-funded Transforming 19th Century HIP Project at the University of Oxford. In March, 2021, she'll begin a Leverholm Research Fellowship at the University of Sheffield to write a book on the orchestra in Afghanistan. Her work has been funded by Arts Council England, British Council, Home Trust and the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. Welcome, Kaina.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you, Holly. It's really nice to be here.
1: It's great to have you here. So before we get into some of the content, we ask our guests every week on this podcast, what music got you through lockdown?
2: Right. Um, <laughs> it's a bit nerdy, I'm afraid to say, but um, I have been practicing piano I'm a very poor pianist and I spent a lot of the initial lockdown just playing Strauss waltzes as kind of a balm um, and also good practice for my left hand leaps and so uh, (laughs) that that's been that was a a really kind of uh, funnily enough a really important part of of kind of managing my stress in those early in those early days as Mm -hmm. well as actually um, Clara Schumann's preludes and fugues her opus 16 I can't I cannot by any stretch play all of them but (laughs) um but the first prelude is absolutely gorgeous and it just you know how when you go to music to fit your emotion as opposed to change it Mm. um it, it was really one one of those and so I I kind of sunk myself into that um quite a bit actually
1: oh that sounds great so could you briefly describe your career and your background a bit for our listeners
2: yeah, you know, it's funny, I, I knew you were going to ask this question, and I started thinking about it. And I kind of, to be honest, I got a little bit paralyzed. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's because, um, first of all, the context, you know, of this discussion is really talking about who has access to cultural production, um, and reflexivity in that whole practice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was, you know, thinking about my own narrative um, of how I got where I am, um, and what privileges I have both in the position that I have and the pr- privileges that I have that got me to this place um, but but that was kind of also compounded by an article that I read recently actually and um, it, so in the Guardian there was an article about how um, a lot of uh, British people who maybe are middle class actually identify as or or construct their narrative around being working class, even though they have middle class professions. Um, And the article talks about how um, people are often referring back to a couple of generations before, and it's more prominent in the cultural industries uh, than perhaps in in other fields, creating this narrative of, of kind of meritocracy and how people have gotten where they're at. Um, and so kind of all of that swimming around, I was thinking, oh, how do I tell my story? So I <laughs> think that the the things I'll, I'll kind of focus on today are, I suppose, the the real big um, kind of markers in my life that, that got me doing what I'm doing, especially with regard to social justice and the orchestra. Um, and the first one actually happened when I was 12. So I I very quickly got involved in kind of the music scene in school. I am 100% a product in so many ways of the American music education system, uh, which fortunately for me in my hometown was actually pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got kind of stuck into that scene. Um, But when I was uh, probably 12 or 13, really strong-willed, belligerent, thought I knew everything, um, (laughs) I thought my band director, um, Sandy Clark, and if you ever hear this Sandy, know that that I was totally wrong. But I thought my band director at the time was absolutely horrible. What did she know about anything? I can do this job better than her. And I, I made this pact with myself that I was going to be a band director when I grew up because I was going to do it better than her, which is just the, the wrong reasons, completely the wrong reasons for making that decision. Um, but it did mean that, like, I didn't question it all through high school. I knew I was going on to do a music education degree um, in college. I never thought about doing anything else. Um, once I got to college, I started, you know, being exposed to more um, opportunities and different ways of being a musician. And so I got actually quite excited about being an orchestra conductor instead of a instead of a band director. Although I am a percussionist, so either one would have been just fine. Um, and. <laughs> I got through, I went all the way through to get my master's degree in orchestral conducting, master's in percussion performance. And I got done and I looked at myself in the mirror, you know, and by this stage, I'm like 24. I spent a lot of time doing my undergraduate, my master's degrees. And I was like, oh my God, what are you going to do with that? You know, <laughs> are you going to spend your life like waving your arms in front of just kind of middle-class people? And um, and I, so on that point, like I made a pact that was, and I remember that was 2004, said okay every year i'm going to produce something if i'm going to do this then i'm i have to use the resources i have to do something better in the world and so i took the focus of producing some concert or event or commission that had to do with either social justice or environmental justice and uh and that just has really evolved yeah
1: that that's really that's really great and it's such a I quite like that it originated from you, your supposed dislike of your band leader but, um, <laughs> that it's that it's re- that it's got to where you are today. and I think that a lot of other young people are perhaps myself included maybe sort of realizing you know I originally wanted to be a performer, a classical performer, and I've sort of changed tack a bit for for the similar reasons really. So I think it's something that's definitely really good to chat about. So, we've chatted to you before a bit about um, your research interest in the politics of cultural production in orchestral music. Could you explain this a bit to our listeners?
2: So, that's a phrase, I'll be honest, that, that I kind of bandy about this, this concept of the politics of cultural production and particularly related to, to orchestra music. And um, to me, what we're really talking about is it's understanding the networks of power that mm-hmm. shape access to to those positions of power which define and get to decide what constitutes cultural values so um and in, in orchestras that means the decision makers from you know what gets played to how it gets played to how it gets funded where it gets performed who's on those stages and indeed being on those stages yourselves and there's a lot of uh, layers to that um and it's uh, in industry that is that has been shaped over many hundreds of years both formally and informally um, and i'm really interested in in investigating those those webs of power that um, yeah that people have to navigate in order to take part mm,
1: yeah could you could you explain a little bit what some of those webs of power are maybe
2: yeah, so, for example, um, you know, how, what is it that, how do people gain access to, if you're going to be a practitioner, let's just think from the practitioner parts, but we also have the production aspects, we have the funding aspects, and so there's all of this is a, a, a large ecology, but let's take it from the practitioner aspect. Um, perspective, thinking about musicians and artists. Um, If you are interested in, or if you, to even become interested in taking part in this, this aspect of cultural production, um, you have to have access to it. You have to even know it exists. You have to understand kind of the rules of the game, as it were, and you have to be um, in a position in which participating in that is actually going to bring back the rewards that you want to see both kind of socially but and culturally um and and perhaps even in skill what you're trying to achieve and there's been some uh, really important work in this area by Annabelle her um, ethnography of youth orchestras and youth choirs and really looking at um, basically how uh, classical music, classical music education in particular, those ensembles are places of developing middle class identities and um, and a place where if that is not an objective or is not an identity for you, people can very much feel excluded and not actually continue to take part. Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess, even to get into that space where you can decide whether or not this is a, a, a venue that you want to participate in and develop, you have to have access to the time, the resources, the training, the spaces. You, know, you have to have a lot of space to practice an instrument. You don't just become an oboe player. If you, if, if you live in a place where you don't have space to practice an oboe, it is not going to happen, uh, mm. or the tolerance um, around you to do it. So, yeah. so that initial, um, that initial access, but then um, it's a matter of who gets put forward, right? So it, and then that's partly to do with networks, but it's also partly to do with how our, our culture, you know, how our biases are kind of embedded in what we perceive to be as talent, what we perceive to be as musicality. You know, mm-hmm. these are, these are all culturally constructed. And um, so depending on, Who's around you? Who promotes you? Who lets you into the the knowledge of where the um, where the next opportunity is, or puts you forward for for an opportunity? Um, that shapes, again, how you can even get into that next stage of having a platform of sharing whatever your talents may be, whatever your your musical expression is. Um, and then from there to get to the other side, where you then become those teachers, where you become those gatekeepers of, you know, who is in and who's out, that, that requires actually being in the field and being promoted by your peers. And mm. um, there are a, a lot of um kind of informal and and formal ways in in which people are excluded just in those cultures and a lot of that comes down to biases or access you know opera pits are not particularly well known for being you know accessible if if you can't walk Um, you know there there are all sorts of issues that create barriers to to participation
1: i think it's so interesting because especially reading the anna ball when i when i did read it over summer I remember thinking literally some of the stuff she'd quoted. I was like, "I can r- distinctly remember even even myself or some of my like friends from back when I was in these exact spaces of cultural production of orchestral middle class kind of standards or whatever i could literally like I could imagine someone saying that to me in that context mm-hmm. um, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on how people in those spaces can begin to understand how that that orchestral music is a product of society in a way how Mm. can how can people who are sort of in the different orchestras of the uk the different youth orchestras of the uk how can that topic begin to be approached in those sort of
2: contexts and spaces yeah well so those are really interesting questions they're really challenging questions and they're challenging Mm. because um i think um developing that sort of self-awareness, self, you know, that reflexivity. And I think, you know, when we first uh, chatted a couple of weeks ago, you know, we talked about that reflective practice and it's not one necessarily that we learn to do early on. It's not a habit for a lot of people. It's not something we're taught. It's certainly not something we're taught as musicians in which we're, you know, we're, we're taught to practice our scales. We're taught to be perfectly in tune. And in fact, you know, our livelihoods depend on our ability to do that, um, and I say our, I'm I'm really kind of um, speaking for for the professional musicians working in um, specifically kind of the orchestra industry and the classical music industry, whose mm-hmm. level of technical proficiency has to be out of this world in order to uh, participate in the first instance. And there's a, a tremendous amount of energy and time um, that goes into that. That's not saying that's no. I'm not I'm not trying to make an excuse for anybody to to not be a reflective practitioner. But when you start to kind of look at how um, teaching is prioritized and where people spend their time and it's explicable as to to where we're at. Um, I do want to to step back just a second because, um, you know, I'm thinking about some of the things I said earlier, and I just want to add in, you know, um, there is a real tendency within, uh, kind of the orchestral music scene, um, to to always be thinking about how do we get everybody to take part in this great art, um, mm-hmm. as we've constructed it, and I think it's really important to to realize that that is. Kind of an assimilationist um, perspective um, mm. to assume that we have a great thing that other people ought to um, have access to and to take part in and I guess I just want to be clear from the outset what I'm advocating for is is access to um, the web of power to involve people in the the decision making that actually constructs what orchestral music practice is and how it creates values um, in our society through its practice and production it's the um, when we're always and I, and and I think we'll talk a little bit later about uh, some of the work I've tried to do to circumvent this to, to better or worse or to less successful degrees, um, <laughs> but but there has always been this narrative about well we have to start at the beginning everybody needs music lessons so that they have the opportunity to do this but by the time we we put people in those frames and and make them go through 20 years of the education necessary to take part in this we've already yeah formed um you know people and their ideas about what this should be um without necessarily allowing for um kind of the diversity of experience or or perspective to come into it at all
0: your role and your research therefore is actually really hopeful because i feel like it would be really easy and forgive me if i'm being really generalist here because i know your your the intricacies of your research i'm, I'm pro- i don't mean to make them seem simplistic um but i feel like it, it would be really easy to just generalize the problem, which is there's a certain way or set of values that are associated with certain music that happens. Mm. And we're just trying to challenge that. But then I guess one question that's sort of playing over in my mind is, is it possible, I guess? And
2: and this is why I say, I think you're being quite hopeful. I do question often, is orchestral music transformable, mm. um, or is the only alternative to leave it and to go elsewhere for the cultural production which personally i find needs to take place or i want to take place whatever whatever sort of value statement i'm I'm going to put on that but it, it is a question and i have heard myself say can orchestral music be anything but you know a a way of defining um and identity making for the middle and upper classes Mm. and um has it ever been anything but and uh you know it's it's a challenging question it's one to you know when you reflect on you (laughs) kind of think oh yeah sure and then oh but is it and oh but is it just um and so i will just say my personal stance is um i don't have an answer to that i haven't tried hard enough yet um and (laughs) I am going to keep trying because I love orchestral music and I love orchestral, large orchestral practice when it works well, when it's healthy, um, when it involves, well, not only when it involves people I know and I like, but but when (laughs) it is an open practice that people can take part in. And I guess just, just get on my soapbox a little bit. One of the things, um, That I will say about orchestras and uh, is that we often have a conception of the orchestra as the LSO, you know, in the Barbican. That's what an orchestra is. But to be honest, there are vastly more amateur orchestras and youth orchestras in this country than professional orchestras. I mean, any day of the week in almost any corner of this country you're going to be able to find a community orchestra that is playing and in fact you know i think oxford is obviously a bit of a bubble in so many mm-hmm. ways um but i think we have at least over a dozen community orchestras plus all of the student orchestras and the youth orchestra and you know however many choirs but that practice is predominantly an amateur practice And then there's a quote unquote elite form of, you know, specialized professional orchestral practice. And so a lot of, you know, there is quite a bit actually that's going on right now. And they're in tremendous initiatives. The BSO um, Resound project, open orchestras, the para orchestra. There are so many opportunities, especially for young people, but increasingly for other people to be involved. Um, I think in many ways, orchestras are doing that well, what we're not doing well as an industry and as a cultural producer is allowing those people who are participants in those peripheral forms of orchestral music making to take the main stage and actually start to shape what orchestral practice is as in the dominant cultural form. And, yeah. um, and I think it's, it's that we need to, to question, you know, mm-hmm. why, why do these practices remain on the periphery? Yeah.
1: I think that leads me quite well onto my next question, which was when we spoke before, you've said that social justice issues within the music industry itself, which is what we've just been talking about, is Mm -hmm. inextricably linked to how musicians work with social change and social justice issues. Perhaps you could expand on that a little bit.
2: Yeah. I mean, in many ways, it's it's kind of part and parcel of the same thing, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, who gets to decide what positive social change is, you know, and, and who gets to be um, the person to put together the bids to make that happen, who gets to be paid for the work doing it, who decides what the parameters are for evaluating whether or not it's successful. And in fact, yeah. who decides who gets money for social change projects through music? And, and all of that is, is, again, tied to who's in power and how yeah. people get to, to be in those positions of, of power.
1: It's such a, you could get, you could sit here all day, literally and just with all those who who gets to, who gets to, but I think it's so important because it is just the continual thinking process that I think isn't really introduced very much in the music industry as I've experienced it anyway. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen many orchestral practitioners reflecting on that continually. So I think, yeah, it's such an important and hopefully will become more widely circulated, I guess.
2: Yeah, I th- I think you know again this is this isn't this isn't based on on uh, my research findings, but it's based on you know thinking a lot about this um, and just being in this industry for a while um, is is just the recognition that it's a precarious industry. Mm-hmm. The people in it, particularly musicians, are feel whether or not you know they are as in as precarious a position as their colleagues, that's probably very difficult, often to disentangle, um, or, or to say, you know, in one way or another, um, that doesn't change the sense of precariousness—that um, there aren't a lot of kind of full-time orchestral jobs that people are are in with you know, really good, uh, secure roles for the rest of their their lives um, within excellent working conditions in which, you know, there's no harassment, there's no, you know, tensions, you know, all all of the things that you would want from kind of a a healthy work Mm -hmm. environment. You know, these things are pretty slim on the ground. And you have a lot of musicians who would find it really hard and literally impossible in terms of livelihood to step aside for somebody else. And I think that's often what Perhaps comes up in the imagination when you said we need to rebalance who takes part, and you're saying, "Well, the market is saturated." Are you saying that I need to step aside for somebody else to take my place because I'm a particular demographic that happens to have been historically privileged, and so therefore I need to give my spot to somebody else? Mm-hmm. And um, how, how? What's the answer to that? Yeah,
0: I think it's, it's it's such an important one to to discuss because the last thing in talking about social justice, the last thing you want to do is to make people feel as though they are not valued (laughs) whoever that is but at the same time you want to be able to reflect and challenge the status quo
1: I think Mm -hmm. yeah also what I've sort of noticed recently perhaps maybe more in the research field is people actually questioning and criticizing musicians that are doing the work that we're doing I guess And I think it's so easy when you're doing stuff like music for social change to be like, well, it's for social change. It's for social good. It must be good. Yay. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think, yeah, I think it's interesting to think about the sort of critical lens that we can come at and when is it, when does it cause
2: damage? Um, and Mm -hmm. always having that sort of thinking process, as you say. Mm -hmm. So Jeff, Jeff Baker and, and again, um, you know, tied into some of the the work that Anna Bull has been doing, has raised those questions around classical music as an appropriate venue. For your know, social action through music, and uh, because of the types of cultures which have traditionally surrounded it, or the ways in which those practices are instantiated in youth orchestras, um, or, for example, in in El Sistema.
1: So you mentioned the um, displaced voices project. Could you chat to us a bit about this project slash research project, and how it relates to the issues of social justice in the music industry?
2: Yeah. So. Um, in 20, I guess it was, we started in 2018, Displaced Voices was a project that was um, done by the Orchestra of St. John's, and I uh, led this project as associate conductor of the Orchestra of St. John's, but also kind of with my researcher hat on, uh, I also organized the a research strand um, alongside this, and that was an, just an interesting thing to do as being both the practitioner and the researcher simultaneously. Um, It's something I can talk about later if we we come to it, but in this particular case, that's how I did it. Um, And the project itself engaged um, four young people from the Oxford Spires Academy who were all um, forced migrant uh, refugees, uh, young people, who had come for a variety of different reasons, but they were all participating in a poetry program led by Kate Clanchy. Um, and so they had already been writing poetry often um, about their experiences, but pretty much about whatever they wanted um, to, to write about. It helped develop the English language skills, but also uh, enabled them to find modes of expression. And one of these not one of the four young people, but one of the people, young people from that program, um, had, had won the Betjeman prize, which I'll admit I didn't know about until she (laughs) won it. Um, (laughs) which is, which is a prize for a young, young poet. And, uh, she was celebrated at Somerville college uh, during a a seminar in which I was in attendance. So, so here, to be honest, we can already start to kind of trace, um, those lines of power that enable even these things to come together and for them to happen. So when I heard her give her poem, um, Amina, uh, Abu Quresh is her name, um, I was really, really impressed. And I, with my commissioning hat on, I thought, ooh, we should set this. I, sh- I want to commission someone to, to set this so that we can, in it, the way that I think, kind of amplify this to a larger audience, perhaps a different audience than she would would normally reach um, from from where she usually has a platform. Um, a lot of assumptions there, obviously, on my part mm-hmm. already. So I um, I approached the school and I said I'd I'd like to ask Amina if uh, if I can set her poem, or not set it, but but commission it to be set uh, by a professional composer for you know, a, a singer and a string orchestra. And they said, oh, Sir Carl Jenkins beat you to the punch. Oh, okay, great. So, <laughs> uh, you know, BBC National Welsh is going to be doing this. Carl Jenkins said, okay. And they said, but we have all sorts of amazing poets. You might be quite interested in doing some work with, with some of our other poets. And so that was the start of this conversation of then what could this project look like and how can we take, the resources so i'm always thinking about how can we take the resources of an orchestra and leverage those resources um, to give people platforms to be able to communicate from one community to another community or even from one community to itself i think that it's it's so important that voices are heard um, which is one of the reasons why i do a lot of commissioning of living and local composers sorry that's a real long story to say what we did so we took these four young poets um and i worked with toby young composer Um, and musician, DJ, all sorts of things um, with the four of them to what we called kind of scaffolding the compositional process to create live orchestral backing tracks to their performances of their poetry with a live orchestra. What that meant in practice was we were going to help construct these string orchestra backing compositions based on what emotions they wanted to convey and the structure behind their poems, the sorts of things that they wanted to amplify. So it was a process of understanding what sorts of sounds convey different types of emotions, what they thought in terms of what sorts of sounds convey different types of emotions for themselves, what words and what aspects of their poetry they thought were most important to convey, and then Toby going away, constructing something, feeding that back to them, getting their feedback about what he's done, um, and then coming up with a final product. And we performed uh, these works in Dorchester Abbey, actually back at Somerville College in the chapel there and at King's Place. So we kind of got a different mixture of audiences. Alongside that, we did have a commissioning project. So there was a book uh, that Kate Clancy had curated of um, poems from the school. It's called England Poems from School, published by Picador in 2018, (laughs) I think. And um, I commissioned three composers. So uh, Shirley Thompson, Uh, Sadie Harrison and and Toby, who was already working on the project, each wrote a piece for mezzo soprano, for Charlotte Tetley, mezzo soprano, and string orchestra, setting those, any poem they wanted to from that book, um, in addition to these four. And so the concert actually contained those premieres, as well as the students speaking their own poems.
1: There's so much to it, like it sounds like I really like hearing the process of how a project comes to be born. Cause I feel like sometimes people just t- talk about a project and you have no idea how it began. Um, particularly with the Carl
2: Jenkins incident. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <It's the> Carl- <laughs> um, I have a couple of Carl Jenkins incidents in my life, but we won't talk about that.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Um, so when, when we spoke to you before you spoke a bit about how you sort of tied in your sort of interest, your research interest with the final performances of the Displaced Voice Project and you had sort of audience participation and interaction could you talk a bit about that
2: Ooh, well I wish I had actually done audience participation and interaction that would have been another step forward basically I did uh, an audience questionnaire uh, which is perhaps <laughs> the antithesis of audience participation <laughs> interaction um but um but the, so the, yeah, so the, the research strands around this, basically the data that we collected, um, was, um, data from the participants. So they, they participated in, uh, kind of inter group interviews all the way through. Uh, and again, you know, there's lots of questions about, you know, the, the research method and, and, um, really happy to talk about those and the advantages and disadvantages of, of what we chose to do, um, So we had interviews with them. And again, we were both practitioners and researchers. It was just a lot of discussions of, you know, where are we at? How are you feeling about this project? What do you think is coming up next? And how are you feeling about that? And um, then we also did a questionnaire for the uh, orchestral musicians that participated, you know, during the performances and rehearsals to see how they experienced the process. We interviewed each one of the composers so what was it like to set, you know, um, these pieces? What were the challenges? And then we actually had someone interview us um, kind of independently some some months after the project to kind of probe what what was going on for us, what we were thinking, our reflections on it, as well as keeping journals. So basically what we ended up with was because this whole body of, um, of qualitative data primarily through those interviews um, and a little bit of, of you know, kind of. Force choice questionnaire tick box things for the for the audiences and and the um mm. and the musicians um and you know and and pulled all of that together into into well kind of a a set of findings i'll, I'll be honest we still have yet to kind of write the final article <laughs> uh, which which we're, we're in the process of doing it's not mm. um you know in dried well, ink yet but we're getting there
1: perhaps you could talk us through what some of the ethical issues that arose during this project and why why was reflexivity so important on the research team
2: yeah so i i think you know there are there are ethical questions both around how we both the research process how we collected that data and how the um that shaped perhaps the sort of data that we got you know so as um both the the workshop leaders and the people asking the questions we're already kind of potentially really grooving those answers i think you know trying to even though we developed a lot of trust with these young people we worked with them a lot over that time um it, it's still a real question as to whether or not anybody is going to feel like they're in a place where they could challenge or provide native, negative feedback to our work, for example, or the way that we, we structured it. You know, there were little, you know, there were little comments here and there about things, perhaps they would have done a little bit different, but that's very different than actually being able to express um, something else. And so, so I think, you know, in those terms, it's always something to really bear in mind and ensuring um, that the research participants are able to participate fully and provide, um, you know, kind of honest contributions to the research findings. Mm. Yeah. So so that's just, you know, in, in in writing this up and in people reading it, that will be something that to to, to bear in mind. Um in terms of the, the project itself, really the questions arise, you know, to what extent do these young people have agency over what that final product would be their choice to take part. I mean, they were asked, they did agree this, they weren't forced into doing this by any stretch, but at the same time, when they agreed, how much did they know about what they would end up doing um, and what that final product would look like. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that that concept of co-production, what is the balance of agency in in that Mm -hmm. co-production? And how can we, how can we engage in that process of scaffolding to, in a way, leapfrog people around the need to learn how to write for a violin? I mean, my gosh, you know, the educational process to learn how to to, to write for a string orchestra. Well, on one side, maybe it's not too hard. On the other side, to, to do what you perhaps might imagine or want to do in your, your wildest imagination might take quite a few years of, you know, yeah. doing it, hearing it trying it again and and teaching etc and learning so um so so trying to to circumvent that to provide a platform to use the orchestra as a platform um for these young people to say what they wanted to say and that was that genuinely was up to them they chose the poems that they wanted to present they wrote wrote those poems um and we supported them in in whatever those choices were i
0: just want to pick up on what you're talking about regarding agency um Mm. Am I right in thinking you were working with, did you say, with young people in this context?
2: Yeah, did over you think, 16, but yeah, young people, still school-aged.
0: Yeah. Do you think, was there an extra layer of difficulty around that? Specifically, what I'm thinking is, working with young people, they can be quite impressionable, they can be quite vulnerable um, to these exact power mm-hmm. dynamics and cultural dynamics that we're talking about. Um. Mm-hmm yeah i i just i'd love to sort of if i can sort of just dig into that a little bit deeper and how you worked out how to encourage agency at the same time as being am i right in thinking that you were in oxford and you were um doing this all from from oxford is that right
2: yeah so the school um is in Mm -hmm. oxford and and uh both i think at the time um uh Toby was living in London, but at the all the same, both of us, you know, are are Oxford based. We have our degrees from the university. Uh I, I think you're absolutely right. There are quite a few power dynamics um, in in the mix um between us and the people that we were working with. And so the extent to which these young people felt that they had agency at any point to say, no, I'm not doing this or I don't like that idea or you know it would be better if we did it this way. Um yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real question and I think that one of um, you know, the skills that I continually try to develop for myself is how, as a facilitator, do I create enough structure in a project to allow people who don't have, who are not in perhaps have the same access to the same knowledge and for as many years as I do about a particular scene or musical scene, how do I create enough of a a structure within that scene to bring people in and allow them to have agency within a space, um, but yet still give them enough choice, you know, Mm -hmm. and and there's probably no magical perfect (laughs) balance. I'm sure it has to everything to do with what the specific situation is and mm. how that's managed on the ground person to person. Yeah, um,
0: I think what you're doing is so inspiring in that regard, I have to say, because it's such a difficult thing to do, just hearing you explain it in that way. I think, yeah, I'm just really heartened by the question you're questions you're asking and the fact that you're willing to, there's this quote, um, Theodore Roosevelt, I don't know whether it's about, it talks about being the man in the arena, the person who's willing to, to just, you know, get a bit messy and and just get involved in the work, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable. And I think the questions you're asking sound like you're, that's the exact kind of thing that you're wanting to do. Yeah.
2: Yo, actually, thank you very much for that, Rebecca. I, I do, I feel like I, I keep putting my my foot out there. I keep putting my, my hand in the arena or myself in the arena. And um, I'm really... Prepared to 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 find out that I haven't done it perfectly. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm trying to go in um, saying, "Well, it doesn't really matter. I'll just figure out what works and what doesn't." You know, it's a constant. Yes. You know, you're talking about reflexivity, a constant process of saying, "Okay, let me think through this from all of the angles that at this stage I'm aware and can think through this, and let me talk to as many people as I can to ensure that that I'm thinking about this in the in the best ways that I can." Yeah. Um, but for myself, I choose not to be paralyzed by the fear that I might get something a little bit upside down from time yeah. to time.
1: I was gonna add as well, if you don't mind, what I've what I've kind of just come to the realization of with which is so sort of like what you were just saying about not being paralyzed, but part of I feel like your research is very like full circle because just hearing you describe about the Displaced Voice Project and then most of what you've talked about is not actually, oh, well, we found this from the research, but actually, like, what were the problems with the research, etc. etc. Cetera, et cetera. But that is exactly what your research interest is, anyway, is looking at all these different things. So it's very, yeah, it's very just full circle, isn't it? Yeah, I'm surprised but, you yeah. keep your head about you, to be
0: honest.
2: I think I'd get a little bit confused. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, to be honest, I mean, so the moving forward, one of the things that I am working to do is ensuring that actually there's a bit more space uh, between myself, despite my interest in this, and it's been so re- rewarding to, to be involved in it, kind of all, all aspects of it, um, but a bit more space between my practice and the research to just get more of that critical view, but, and also ensure as a practitioner that when I invite external researchers into the space, I also make allowances for their needs because I know as a researcher going into somebody else's space you know when i've researched orchestras that are not my own for example um it can be really hard to get access to the things you need access to i need this sort of data i want to be able to ask this or whatever and people say well that's fine but you cannot disrupt what we're doing and -hmm. you're like "Mm, okay well i'll just (laughs) get then whatever it is that i can around the edges without disrupting the main event um and so, as a practitioner that is working to build in a research component, um, and I think you know, again, going back to to Jeff Baker's work in in Columbia, when you know he's he's looking at um, at Red, and I'm going to get the the full name of the the um, music program wrong, but um, that actually in its fabric, this you know social action through music project has a reflexive and embedded. Um, research and um kind of review process in it the whole thing is meant to grow the whole thing is meant to change as opposed to be a thing do it as best as it can and then get an external review it's actually meant to develop side by side with that review process in in parallel with with sociological researchers so um whilst most of what i do is kind of a one-off one-off here one-off there project um i am working towards ensuring that those research components are as embedded as they can be, and make space for those researchers and also build trust with participants too with those researchers, so that we can learn as much as as we can um, and and again continue to to grow these practices as as best as we can.
1: That's so great, that's so great, especially to hear a bit about what you're thinking for the future, definitely, after sort of getting into it. Um in discussion so yeah thank you so much i just to sort of round off is there are there any opportunities or i don't know research projects you're working on or performances or is there anything you would like to promote
2: or talk about for listeners Ooh, things to promote um you know, it's such a—it's a funny thing. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but the reason why I say that is is talking about reflexivity. I was very conscious that I'm here. To, I'm here today talking to you guys because mm-hmm. I did work with four exceptional young people whose participation in a project that I created meant that you know I did this research and came to your attention, and so here I'm given this platform to discuss discuss my things. And so, so that concept of, you know, promoting what is it that, that I want to promote um, is, is an interesting question. Um, first of all, I would just say, um, if you haven't seen the Displaced Voices video on YouTube, please do because I, I guess I would want to promote the work of these young people i know uh timmy Amuson, um who has his his wonderful piece which is just hilarious he's one of the funniest guys i've ever met um i know he has continued uh to to write and to develop his his poetry and i know the others have moved on to do other things as well and um i would just love for you to to hear and um appreciate their contributions definitely we'll share
1: we'll put it in the um comment section so for those who are listening just check that out below and you can go and watch it <laughs> great thanks so much kayena it's been really great to chat
2: to you and thank you so much for coming to have this conversation with us today thank you so much for this wonderful initiative and giving me the opportunity to beat my head about with two really intelligent young women thank <laughs> yeah. you very much oh it's been a joy thanks Kayana.
0: Okay, Holly, what did you enjoy talking about with Kayana the most?
1: Um, so I really loved like, everything she talked about, to be honest. I think as an orchestral player, um, it's something that's like really refreshing to hear her perspectives. And also, I thought it was quite... I think what's great is to have a really critical lens on the area of music and social change mm-hmm. and social justice and making sure we're looking at that critically as well as positively. But also, I think it was really nice to that she talked about sort of like the future and yeah the sort of ideas that she had for sort of shifting the power of sort of musical musical power dynamics within the sort of orchestral tradition and how she was hoping to sort of chip away at that slowly um mm-hmm. as well as other people which i think was yeah. great how about yeah. you uh
0: yeah i really liked the, the way she was talking about shifting power over time so thinking about changing the legacy of of opportunities and who gets those opportunities and who gets to be on the platform as you were just talking about um but also I just really liked you know she's clearly like this really intelligent woman but she's also just very determined and and I think her character in that sense really comes across and I think it means that her passion for orchestral music is what keeps her fighting Mm. you know she's got this incredible fighting spirit and I think she does anyway I hope she won't mind me saying that but I think that means that she's she's the best in the best place to um tackle these difficult questions and I think mm. it does require someone who's willing to go the extra mile and willing to take the long route and the difficult route round to get to the same destination yeah because she believes that that's the best practice and I and I really admire her determination and her integrity in that way Yeah, for
1: sure.
0: If you enjoyed listening to our conversation, please like, rate and subscribe to this podcast and be sure to give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at UK. Have a great week and thank you for listening.